Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and this week we're joined by Club Finance Director John Timms for another in our Meet the Board series. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Guy. Good to see you again. And you. So, as always with these podcasts, start with how we how we got to be here in the first place and how you originally got interested in Alphas. Mm, right. Well, it goes back a long way, possibly longer than your interest, I suspect. Um, but back in 1979, I joined a company up in Vista um, that was a small offshoot of a big American company you may have heard of, United Technologies. They make all sorts of interesting things. And we made test equipment for engines like a sun tester people are familiar with that type of thing but it wasn't it was typically installed in factories but the, the side effect of that of course is there's lots and lots of car nuts working for the company and me being one of them but also lots of others and one guy had just bought uh alpha 1.5 ti i think in january 1980 he bought it so it was one of the first series 2 1.5 ti's and he was raving over it of course he was right and I was looking for something to replace both Beth and I had got minis at the time and I had a I actually had a 1275 GT with stage two preparation as all sorts it was a bonkers car um, it used to leave the road if you went over a bump in the middle of the <laughs> of a bend you know no suspension so uh, anyway we're looking at various British cars to replace it you know, a bit bigger recently married or well, getting married we were at the time and he said just try my sud you'll love it we tried the sud you know Beth came up to Vista tried it and just fell in love with it and I just went out and we bought the first sud that was for sale on Auto Trader that was a year old that we could find and it was a, a red 1.3 super 1286 engine four-door and it was fabulous, absolutely fabulous. We took that all over Europe and so on, just fell in love with it. So that was my first Alpha. Got worried about the tales of rust, and I probably sold it too early. In uh, 82, I bought a Sprint Veloci, uh, brand new, wonderful car. It's probably the most reliable car I've ever owned. Nothing went wrong on it, never went out of tune. Absolutely, you know, we just loved it and just go anywhere in it. I'd love another one, a good one. I think you probably heard recently on a Thames Valley section in a Zoom meeting, we had this conversation and that was one of my dream alphas. <laughs> um, that's a, a real one that doesn't rust. Uh, so that was my introduction to it. I just, I just find them, still think the Suds are one of the greatest cars ever made, best handling, as as you know. You had, you owned them as well. I did. I had a couple of sprints. My one Sud saloon was... Um was slightly rusty in that you could probably have put your fist through the top of the front wings yeah. but uh, uh, the sprints were both pretty good actually and the opposite for me my my saloon was fabulous never never really had a big rust problem it was a little bit around the rear wheel arches if i remember rightly um, and i should have kept it because it was really really good but the sprint <laughs> i think every panel had rust roof a pillars the lot it was just a a complete basket case in three years it's unbelievable unbelievable I'm, I'm probably slightly romanticizing my second sprint as ian brookfield would probably confirm because he spent quite a lot of time putting new sills and various other bits on it to, to keep it rust free but, yeah 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 it's such a shame and they're just just such a good car anybody who's driven one will know anybody who hasn't that happens to be listening to us um you have to try and find a way of driving one one day yeah they are just so good 
Yeah, I saw on my um, my Android the other day, there was whether you get a, a news feed appears on the left, and it's obviously things that they know you're interested in. And the Telegraph apparently had an article about the Alphasud okay. the weekend. Um, and it was NUM something or other P, I can't remember the number now, it's quite a well-known car in the club that they actually featured in the article. So uh, there may be one or two people actually looking. At the yeah, and that was one of the conversations we had with Ian when Ian was on the podcast. It, it, it seems to be about that time where the people who either had one or dreamed of having one when they were new are now at the, the point where they've got the disposable income and the time to start thinking about having another one. So they seem to be yeah. you know, the, the kind of the coming 105, although the, the the yeah. numbers sadly aren't there tiny numbers though yeah. there's just nothing like i think they were saying there were 27 of them left i don't know whether that was ti's i would imagine it's just ti's yeah. it was a that's a series one ti which is like the purest uh model yeah although the later ones once they had electronic ignition and things like that were much more reliable i would have thought anyway yeah just that's what got me into alphas um i think probably like you i started reading about the myth and legend the history, how we got to where we are, and just thought that this is just unbelievable. You know, the whole ethos of the company is to produce cars that are wonderful to own and drive. And it keeps coming up in these podcasts, but you know, and it, and it's awkward given the situation we find ourselves in. But the the old French ad with the Alpha virus in a in a jar, I think, just hmm. sums it up. Yeah, better than anything. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Once you're hooked, but there's something something about them which they repeated time and time again um i've owned you know, uh, several alphas over the years i mean after the sprint i ended up with company cars and i couldn't have an alpha um i, I tried my best to get a 164 off the fleet <laughs> at one point um but the amount was i don't know they were expensive to uh, get on a contract hire and so in a fleet a, you know a, a 164 would be way more expensive than a bmw 320 or something like that sadly at the time but a salesman had one got one somehow or other and he left and they had this 164 on the fleet which nobody wanted amazingly well that's not true i wanted it <laughs> uh, but um no, i couldn't have it i did try it entry level 164 twin spark great car really really lovely um but beth and i bought we had two of those over the years and the first one was superb. It was one of the original Twin Spark Lussos in pewter. So it was the same color all the way from sill to roof. Um, no, well, it had pewter rubbing panels or whatever you call them, but that's the same color as the paint. And it looked fabulous. It went fabulous. I bought it with 98,000 miles on the clock, I think. And we sold it with 150 and bought one with half the mileage, which frankly wasn't as good, sadly. But the, the, the first 164 Twin Spark we had was just a wonderful car. Again, it would handle superbly. Not too much weight over the front wheels. If you go and drive, your, drive a Cloverleaf or a 3-litre, you'll discover that there is a difference in the handling. Just like a 156. Um, the V6s are fabulous, but they don't handle as well as the Twin Sparks. But I, we loved that. 164s sold them because they were becoming expensive to maintain as in you'd end up with not just a four-figure sum for servicing, but a four-figure doubled. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it just starts to become a, a bit of a crazy proposition um, as an everyday car. But you've, um, you've pretty much followed Alpha's development over the years in terms of the cars that you've had, haven't you? The 164 oh, yeah. wasn't, wasn't the last modern Alpha you had. Oh, no, I've had a, um, a 156 V6. Well, actually, before that, I had a 146 Ti. Uh, I think 
um, you guy also had a 1460 Ti. Um, I bought one of the first demonstrator cars. Actually, it wasn't a demonstrator. It was a showroom car from the original delivery batch. And actually, it was almost as reliable as my Alphasud Sprint. More so if you count the rust situation, because it didn't have any. And that was just a great fun car. It's the, probably, with the exception of an Alphasud, is the quickest in narrow country lanes that I've owned because its turn-in was superb. Surprisingly, you know, just a simple car, just engineered properly for driving, even though high seat position, which is slightly strange. I've tended to sit very low in all the Alphas I've owned apart from that. But I, I love that car as well. A little bit rougher around the edges, but still great fun, great fun. And we replaced it with a 156 it got a V6 when they came out, so I, I ordered it at the launch date, got it on August the 1st, whatever it would be, 1998. I actually still own it, although it's not running. And I did 130,000 miles in it as an everyday car, funded by a company. So I did lots and lots of miles the first three years, like 20,000 miles a year for three years, driving around all sorts of customers up in Yorkshire, actually. I was doing lots of work with telco, alternative telcos based in West Yorkshire, which is where a lot of them were. So we were up and down the country almost every week, project managing stuff out there. So that, that car's been fabulous. Sadly, it's got a leaking steering rack, which isn't easy to get to or repair or cheap. But we're looking into ways in which we can get it back on the road soon, hopefully. And since then, I've had a couple of 159s. I think I had a 159 2.4 diesel Lusso, silver sport wagon which is, again, a pretty reliable car. Very little go went wrong on that. I think I had a, an oil cooler connection uh, fail, and that's it. And that was under warranty. Nice car, lovely car. And then I had a, a guy turn up at the Thames Valley section meeting with a Q4 for sale, diesel Q4 sport wagon for sale. Bit of a paintwork problem on it. And I bought it because the Q4 is obviously the car I really wanted when I bought the, <laughs> the other one. And it's just a different car. You've got a Q4 Spider. You know that the handling on them is just amazing. It's not just grip, it's handling as well. You can drift it and on a track. I've had the, the tail sliding wide, which is rear wheel drive, really. Um, it's, what are they, 70% rear wheel bias in normal driving, yeah. I think? Um, so it just transforms the car into a completely different beast. It's a heavy car and it handles, it's, I don't know what, 1.7, 1.8 tons or something stupid like that. And with a diesel lump up front or a V6 lump up front, it still goes incredibly well. Yeah, I mean, it's not, not such an issue on the on the sport wagon, but the other advantage of the Q4 on the Spider is it eliminates a lot of the scuttle shape because the, the yeah. underpinnings tie the whole thing together better than yeah. the, the front wheel drive ones. Yeah. It's a superb car, and you know, I would buy a Julia if it wasn't for the fact that there's no four-wheel drive and no sport wagon. Um, you know, the car I want, they basically decided they don't want to build. And a Stelvio is just, to me, is not really the sort of car I want or need. Uh, my girls have flown the nest years ago, so I don't need a big car like that. And 156, 159, sorry, is too big, really, for our everyday needs. So, you know, we bought a Giulietta, what, three-year-old Giulietta about six years ago, seven years ago, with less than 6,000 miles on the clock. So basically a brand new car for half price. And that's the everyday car for Beth at the moment. Uh, she loves it. I'm not so keen. I don't like the uh, the steering feel. And I don't like, um, well, the, the, the side effect of the steering feel is you don't really know which way the front wheels are pointing when you go hard off a roundabout or something like that. So it, it doesn't have the feel of the Julia electric steering. 
the Julia is unbelievably nice car to drive. So yeah, absolutely have that on my list of things to get at some point in the relatively near future. Um, and I've, I've missed out in all of that. <laughs> um, actually, we had a 33 as well at one point, a very rusty 33, but we'll, we'll ignore that one for now. That was just the second car for a while. But oh, about 31 years ago, I bought a Series 2 Spider. And I've still got it. Um, no one's seen it in 10 years because it's been off the road being restored. However, it is finished. It's been completely restored from the point of view of the floor and sills, which had been badly repaired actually before I got it. So as a 15-year-old car, it had already had floor sections replaced roughly. I finally, 10 years ago, got around to yeah, getting our local specialist around the corner from me to rebuild the floor, rebuild the rebuild the sills, a few mechanicals as well we've done, rebuilt the carburetors, things like that. Bare metal respray in semaphoro, Rosso semaphoro, so Pininfarina red, a lot of people call it, the slightly orangey yeah. red colour, which is absolutely spot on for a 1975 model. What else have I done? Yeah, various other little bits of improvements and so on. But we put the, the replacement mohair hood back on it, stretched it in place eventually. So are we going to, going to see that at Bista at National Alpha Day? I hope so, unless I have to bring the um, club shop with me again, <laughs> uh, as I had to for Stoner last year because uh, Nick being unavailable. I had to go and pick up chunks of stuff from Nick's place, which really meant the sport wagon was the only option. So with that kind of history, uh, it's not surprising you got involved with the club, but how, how, did, the, how did you find yeah. out and, about the club and, and get involved? Well, back in the early 80s, um, when I had my first Sud and was buying the Sprint, we had a dealer called Kennett Motors in Reading, where I lived. And Kennett Motors used to promote the club. They actually had you know, joined the club leaflets and all sorts. And I assume the service manager at the time was a club member. May well have been. They're certainly very keen. And they said, why don't you join the club? You seem to be the right sort of keenness level and you're replacing an alpha with an alpha. So you haven't lost faith. And so I did eventually. I mean, the, the tales were rife at the time. It was really difficult to join the club because it took a while to get a response from the, the then manager, sadly. I'm, I don't think I'm putting him down too much by saying that was really true. Lots of people experienced the same problem. And it took me about six months, I think, to join. So I think in 83, judging by my membership number, it must be 1983. I joined and I've been a member ever since apart from a year or so when I was living in the States when my renewal didn't go through because I never <laughs> saw it and then it took another eight months to rejoin so basically I've been a, a member since 83 since my Alpha Sprint owning days and that was it really. And when did you get sucked into um, to helping out with the section? In the early 90s uh, when we moved here I live in South Oxfordshire uh, near Henley-on-Thames and we moved here in 92 or 93 93. And the day after we moved in, I got fed up with boxes, moving them left, right and centre. And so I'm going to a section meeting. <laughs> so I went over the river, down the road towards Maidenhead to what would have been the Seven Stars pub at Knoll Hill, which is where we'd met for years. And lots of car clubs meet there, met there, I should say, that doesn't exist as a pub anymore. And I went down there, met 
a few people like Jonathan Griffin um, and Michael Haynes, who is a um, long-serving club member and used to be the section secretary many, many, many years ago, and a few others that had been there for a year, years, and uh, started to join in, brought my spider down, uh, recently acquired spider at the time in the summer, and so on. Yeah, so I just joined the section then, became an ever-presence, and of course, the ever-presence means that you become invited to become the section secretary at some point, and I did that as well when um, I took over from Jonathan, actually, Jonathan Griffin. He was section secretary for a couple of years, I think. And then I left it. I had it for, I don't know, 10 years or more, probably. Maybe more than that. I don't know now. And then because of you know, eventually being invited to join the board as well, being a section secretary is just too much. You can't do that as well. I don't think I was ever a very good section secretary anyway. I hated all of the communication. Anyway, yeah, so I joined the board, um, got invited to join the board when the previous management teams had been running the club for years. I'm talking about John Dooley, much loved, sadly departed, of course, and Ed McDonough. I think his wife, Nancy, was very ill at the time. He lost her around that time, 10 years ago, probably just over 10 years ago, and had been a wonderful servant to the club, as you know. But those that generation wanted to move on, and they were looking for people to take over and a lot of us got invited in the end a ludicrous number of people got invited to join the board and I was one of them but actually I was one of the first that was approached as it happens and I think it's on the back of in 2011 we ran National Alpha Day in the Thames Valley um, and it was a pretty successful event even though it was a bit damp and we clearly knew what we were doing in the way of organizing an event I think that must have been the mistake we made and hence, we got, <laughs> I got invited to, um, as section secretary at the time, I got invited to join the board. So I just joined as a you know, normal board member um, and for two years served as a board member. And then Ed Maiden, who had joined at the same time, but he's a qualified accountant, runs his own practice. He had run as our finance director. But I'd obviously shown a fair amount of interest in the sort of functioning of the club as a business, trying to apply some appropriate controls to it along with him. And so other members of the board asked me if I would consider being finance director when Ed felt he had to move on. Living down in Devon is a long way to get to board meetings yeah. and he just couldn't keep it up. So Ed, Ed is actually now the club's accountant. So for the formal presentation of accounts, he is the man we use because he knows us and he loves us. He's a, an Alfa Romeo owner. He had a suit at the time and he's now got a, I think he's got a hot Julieta, hasn't he? Yeah, anyway. Yeah, so I took over as um, finance director in 2013, I guess, and have been ever since. I think a lot of people who haven't been involved at, at board level in any organisation tend to think of the finance director who is the person who's responsible for, for the kind of annual accounts and the you know filing accounts for tax and that that kind of thing. But the role's much more about kind of management accounts and the, the management of the business, isn't it? Yeah. The way we're running things here, Nick Wright is actually the, the treasurer, as in he handles all of the money on a day-to-day -day basis, makes all the payments and so on. I don't do any of that. I authorise things above a certain level. So financial controls are in place that John Griffiths, Peter Farker and myself as chairman, company secretary and finance director authorise you know, increasing levels of payment, if you like. But Nick does it all of that. 
So my job is to actually control the flow of money more. What we are going to do, I set a budget in agreement with the board, and then I actually try to make sure they keep to it. They're not very good at it as the board and management of any company. You know, there's always something that comes up during the year, which wasn't foreseen. But there's usually things that we had thought we want not to spend money on, but we don't. So there's usually a balancing trick to play. So we set a budget. That's one thing. I try to make sure that the general operating expenses are covered by the general operating income, if that makes sense. It does. Um, in other words, we don't lose money on our day-to-day -day operations. The club is fortunate that we have substantial reserves. We've got six-figure reserves, which is pretty amazing. It's been built up over many, many years. And actually, I should say many thanks to Margaret Sisme, who was the finance director for several years back in the the noughties, I guess. She, I think, is the person who was in charge when the funds were being amassed. And I've taken the view that we can use those funds, but to invest in something to make the club better, as opposed to just running them down by keeping the subs artificially low, for instance. So I'm trying to make sure that the, art, that the, the subs, you know, the income we get from advertising in the magazine and so on, covers all of our operating costs. So that's paying for the membership software that we use, which is a subscription type license and our club manager, our magazine editor, whoever he is, and people like that, that we, we have to pay because it's a, it's um, it might not be a full-time job, but it certainly occupies a lot of time. So you can't do those things on a voluntary basis, those sort of jobs. And all of our expenses for meetings and things like that, uh, operational expenses, they're not investment type things. But an investment in even something like a couple of years ago, we sponsored a BTCC car, if you remember, and we paid for that sponsorship but as a result we got lots of access to the track and the car and the pits and so on and a lot of members got a lot out of it so i regarded that as a form of investment in providing a service to club members that they could benefit from they were getting lots and lots of free tickets and so on so it's a bit borderline to be honest but it's a form of investment and similarly we started a few years ago we invested in a parts service and you know the parts service is not supposed to be a profitable enterprise after all our costs of insurance storage and whatever paying commission to the person who operates it and so on and so forth but it is an investment we have to buy you know five figure sum in parts in order that we've got some to sell but the other aspect of it was to buy parts that were in danger of being binned literally written off such that we would have things for 156s and 147s and the like in 10, 15, 20 years time that people can't get anywhere else. So we would actually keep them on the shelves where others might throw them away because they're, you know, as a normal business, you can't afford to tie up your stockroom with things that are just never going to be used in the foreseeable future. Um, they're far too short term for that. Whereas we, we took the view that we would take these things and try and protect club members who were keeping cars on the road from the loss of parts. So that was the general principle behind that, which is very much an investment activity. Closely controlled, there's no way I was going to allow it to operate on the basis that all we were doing was buying parts and never selling any. There had to be a certain cash flow in and out and eventually it would be cash flow neutral and non-profitable over years but not loss-making either. Yeah, so the, the investment principle is the return doesn't have to be you know, a percentage of the cash that we made into the investment. Oh, no. it's, an, it's a return in terms of providing a better service to, to the members of the Absolutely, club. Absolutely, yeah. So trying to quantify that that in some way so basically let's make sure we don't invest a hundred thousand pounds in a btcc car because we'll never get that back in terms of benefit to club members let's try and keep the amount we we spend within a sensible 
range that provides commensurate benefits, if you like, to club members and enough club members. And one of the things I do is I look at things and, and divide the amount we're spending by the number of members who might be interested in it and make sure that it's fair on all members. So if you had something that cost £10,000 and only 20 members were interested in it, you'd effectively be paying £500 each, wouldn't we, for each of them? Well, their subs are only £40, so it's clearly unfair on everybody else. You know, that's an extreme example. But, you know, the, the general principle should be that divide you know, the cost of something by the number of members to see if it's a fair deal for everybody that, that improves the club and doesn't over uh, benefit specific small number of people within the club. And I guess if you if you take a pure business view of it, anything that improves the services to the members is effectively a, a financial investment in that the more members we retain, the more members we recruit, the more money we have to invest and provide those yeah. services. Yes, that's right. There, there is a level of that. I mean, at some point, we have to be very careful because obviously we have one massive cost, which is producing a magazine, which, as you know, is how much does it cost in a year? £100,000 in a year to get six magazines out easily. And we've got to make sure that that's covered properly, you know, plus paying for a club manager and so on. So we have to keep a, an eye on certain aspects of the of the, the business, if you like, and make sure that it does run properly as a break-even type business on our operational level. And as well as the, the investment and return side, there's... There's some other aspects of your involvement which are you know use kind of business language but aren't necessarily what people would expect when they first hear them so you you were responsible for setting up some some kpis for how we measure how yeah. successful the club is and they're not they're not necessarily directly financial kpis oh no i think in one or two cases we've struggled to find a kpi that isn't financial but in general they are yeah, you know, we do something in the club. Uh, we invest in something. So, for example, David Faithful at the moment is looking at improving our website um, in the number of ways. In fact, he's improved it a lot this year, to be fair. Um, certainly from a usability and presentation point of view, at very little cost, actually. So very impressively done. But if we were to migrate to a different system at a certain cost, what I would be looking for is some KPIs that told me how we were doing at the moment on member engagement on the website and then some KPIs in the future, the same KPIs, have we improved that? Have we got better member engagement in some way? So in other words, has the changes delivered benefit to the club in some way? If, presumably if there's more member engagement, it means that the members like it. Yeah. And uh, the club certainly likes it because we want more engagement with members. So, But we need KPIs of that nature. So those KPIs are not financial at all. They are, you know, number of people running through the pages which pages are they looking at that type of thing so how many people are using say the directory of services page the map of where all the alpha dealers and specialists are i think it's an incredible resource i know as a, a member of the committee in the thames valley which you are as well you know kirsty who's our new section secretary is already fielding questions from members as to where they can get some support and help in the north of our region it's a little bit of a desert but there is somebody up there and he's listed on the directory page so anybody new to the club we need to direct them towards it really because it's a it's a great resource that uh, david faithful's put together but get get on there but i'd love to see a kpi on how many people are going there yeah and i was just going to say if you think about sections i mean sections are something that don't cost us a huge amount of money to operate they don't directly generate huge amounts of money in fact they generate so little money that they're allowed to keep it and use it for pretty much what they they want to use it for but there are kpis around section activities that again are around making the section successful in in retaining and recruiting 
members. Yeah, the board over the years has had several discussions about sections and engagement with members locally is what a section is about. Um, and in order to try to I don't know, the word is get a more uniform experience for members around the country, which is difficult for some people. You know, there's areas of the country like North Wales, which are a desert for sections. They're so far from anywhere. And that's being you know, totally unfair to expect that there's anything different because there are very few members there. So to try and get a uniform experience is not easy. A section like Scotland is enormous. You know, one section, um, it's a long journey to get to a meeting anywhere for a lot of people doesn't matter where you put it. So it's not easy. But on the other hand, we can try to measure engagement. And so we have a number of KPIs associated with sections. Um, I forget exactly what they all are, because in this weird year we've just experienced, I haven't actually bothered maintaining them because it's unfair. Um, but we did look at the number of sections providing an article into the magazine every other month. And not necessarily looking at specific sections. We're only interested in, are we getting enough coverage? And as we set a target for it, and I think we're pretty close to meeting that target uh, reasonably well. I think with yourself in position and along with Clive, who coordinates that part of the magazine, I think we've got a good relationship with a lot of section secretaries and we actually get the contributions we want. And the same for registers. We're getting a reasonably good level of coverage from registers as well. Um, especially the modern alphas, I think we get a, a lot of good content from them. And we were keeping those as KPIs. Also, the number of sections that are active with a real committee, um, the number of sections that are claiming subsidies, which means they're doing things that need to be, you know, small amounts are paid for or rewards or whatever to local members, that type of thing, just to keep an eye on how well sections in general are engaged with the membership. And I think it was it was the right thing to do to relax the, the monitoring of those KPIs in the year we've had. But certainly from a magazine uh, contribution perspective, I suspect they've done as well or did as well in the last 12 months as they have done in, in most years. Yeah, I probably will go through and, and just check what the KPIs were before we have our next board meeting and just feed it in because there is actually a scheduled discussion about local engagement and you know, how we're running things there and picked there's actually going to be a discussion about financials um, because it's such a pain to have a bank account these days because of anti-money laundering legislation uh, that we're looking at how we can provide a central bank account to sections that's probably going to bore people stupid if they listen to this bit of the, <laughs> the discussion because most people aren't you know wouldn't even be aware of it but it's such a pain for the, the local committees to have to have a bank account to handle a few hundred pounds these days and um, so Nick and I are going to look at what we can do to make life easier for people and I can't remember which section it is but one of them Nick has already got an agreement to take the money centrally ring fence it and run it for them make all the payments and do it for them so it makes life a lot easier yeah. so that, that's the idea so but that's part of a number of things that we're going to try to do to help and support section secretaries and registrars for that matter and we've we've kind of touched on it over the last couple of minutes but a lot of what we've talked about about your role is what you would do in a in a normal year and we've just had a a very very abnormal year um how was last hmm. year different in terms of the role well i set three budgets <laughs> the first one was a normal one in january february whatever um, and i think we even agreed it at board level 
at a board meeting, can't remember now. And then, of course, COVID hit and lockdown hit more accurately. And we realized that we weren't going to be able to do a lot of stuff. And we needed to make sure that the club would be able to run at break even, hopefully, in a COVID environment with no events and so on. And so I did a budget based on that. And then I, when I went through it, I thought, well, how long is this lockdown going to last or pseudo lockdown? And it became obvious fairly quickly, if you thought about it. And I think as a business manager anyway, you know, I run my own business and I'm on, on the board of a another company as well, it became obvious that you had to plan for a number of eventualities, including a lockdown that lasted 12 months, which is almost what we've achieved already. And so quite rightly, I think in the end, I did two budgets for lockdown, one which was lifted in time for something to happen in the autumn and one that wasn't. And in practice, we're halfway between the two. We just about managed to do one event at Stoner Park locally to us, as it happens, which was useful. But oh... Uh, that was quite a lot of effort and also a lot of soul searching to determine, well, what will the impact of COVID be? Yeah. And we actually budgeted on the assumption that we would be losing members because financially they may not be able to afford to be a club member because nothing was going on. They may not want to be a club member. And because we weren't holding events, we wouldn't be able to recruit people in the same way as we normally do. We recruit a lot of people at events. And so we budgeted for at least 250 members down on the year and probably as much as 400 or 500. And in practice, it's been amazing. We've lost 102 members total over the year. And I have just gone through all the numbers. There were 622 joiners which is the, I think it's the third, no, the fourth best year since I've been keeping KPIs. So only the last three years, 2019, 18 and 17 were better than that. So we've recruited more people than we recruited in every year up to 2016 as a club. It's possible we recruited more in a year during the heyday of the 156, yeah. but I'm not sure that that's true. I'm, I really am not sure. Uh, I wasn't involved in keeping any records, managing the club or anything, so I, and we don't have the records, yeah. so it's impossible to say. But looking at the member numbers, it's possible. If you look at the numbers that joined in those years, or the actual member numbers that were allocated, it's possible we had a few more. But it's pretty amazing that we can achieve that. Actually, I think a lot of it might be down to yourself. Um, excellent magazine with word of mouth, um, but also these podcasts. Some people listen to them, I believe. <laughs> and um, the virtual racing series, which seems to have captured people's imagination uh, really well. So, you know, you, you've done a, a great job yourself in, in keeping the club activities going and keeping some level of different interest um, in strange times. Yes. So basically, I did three. And then I've spent my time trying to forecast where we were against the budget. <laughs> um, actually, it wasn't too difficult. Throughout the year, we spent a lot of time, a few of us, including David, I think Duncan and uh, John obviously were involved as well in determining our COVID policy, which was really, really tough because obviously people want to do things. But as a responsible organisation and business, we had to take a view that we cannot be condoning a lot of different types of activities. And you've been involved in some of the discussions as well, I think. And, you know, we basically said, be careful. <laughs> we, we, we can't go too far. But in the autumn, it became obvious that things were being relaxed nationally. And as long as people were sensible, you could have outdoor events. And so we went ahead with a very, very compliant and helpful venue, Stoner Park, near Henley-on-Thames. William Stoner was amazing at the support he put in to try to get our Southern Alpha Day going. And we had a fabulous day. It's an incredible venue, really, really well put on by them 
as well as ourselves. And obviously, because it's local, I was involved with Jonathan Griffin and Kirsty just after she got appointed section secretary and got thrown in the deep end. We ended up having a, a great time. Really, really good event. Wonderful display of cars. And so that was that's a bit, you know, when you run a big event like that, there's quite a lot of work involved, as I'm sure you're aware. And, and with hindsight, I don't think we, we even realised at the time how narrow that window was that we were we were going yeah. to be able to squeeze that event into. Yeah. I mean, we had a little chat with Clive down in the Southwest because they were still possibly going to run a Southwest Alpha Day. Um, but unfortunately, the venue involved is part indoors, part outdoors. So I think it was always going to be a struggle in these in this year. But it was only a brief discussion with Clive. I know it never really was going to come happen, I don't think. Um, it would have been nice, though, if we could. And we just about had time to do it. But things started tightening up in October, yeah. um, which is when it would have been. So it could easily have been cancelled. And I know, you know other things like Derbyshire or North Midlands, as they're now known, had a, um, a charity drive, which I think they had to cancel at the last minute. But when they started organising it, it looked as if it was a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, so it's really, really difficult to, to run an event. And we could easily have had Stoner cancelled. Easily it could have been cancelled. I think we had a last-minute agreement from Thames Valley Police and South Oxfordshire District Council both gave us go-ahead, which I think is important to make sure you've got these sort of people on side. And it, it looks as though this year probably won't, or certainly the first half of this year won't be that much different in terms of, of starting in restrictions and really not being able to predict where they're going to go over the next six months or yeah. so. Well, they're saying oh, all over 50s will be vaccinated by the end of April, I think, aren't they now? So that's uh, you and I covered. Yeah, I, th I, th I think the um, I think the slight wiggle room they gave themselves is that they will have all been offered a vaccination, but they might not have been offered oh, a sorry, vaccination yeah. before the end of They'll have got their offer before uh, the end okay. of April, but the offer may be mm, okay. to have it done in May. But, but you know, yeah. even then, you know, we should be in a position where most of the really vulnerable people, vulnerable age groups are covered by late spring, early summer. Yeah, it, it seems that's the case. So I think we can assume that the late summer onwards, we've got good opportunity. It's a bit tight on National Alpha Day, let alone Spring Alpha Day, you know, from an events point of view. So I think Spring Alpha Day, personally, I think is at risk. When it, I can't remember when it is, April sometime, I guess. Yeah, it's the 18th, it? I think. Yeah. So I, that must be at risk, surely. But the National Alpha Day, end of June, beginning of July, should be okay, that sort of time. But I think it could be tight, depending on how things uh, move. It is outdoors, of course. I don't think there's any intention to use any indoor space there, although there is indoor space available, I understand. So um, it's not too bad, but it could be a, a tough one. And I'm currently thinking budget-wise, uh, goodness only knows what we put in. I think I plan on the basis that these events will happen. And it's possible that there'll be a limited attendance because people won't, may not wish to travel or may not even be allowed to travel in some cases. So we'll be a little bit cautious on numbers from a planning point of view. But other than that, I think we'll, we'll budget on the basis that they're happening. It's, it's very much my, my role is to actually try to finance what people want to do rather than telling them what they can do. I'm, I take the, the view that I am not the boss here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I'm partly a servant, but I'm also going to advise as to, you know, that doesn't actually stack up. So anyway, anyway, that, that's the way it is at the moment, I think. So last year, though, interestingly, because of COVID, my work dropped off like many, many people. I'm self-employed, really, in, to a large extent, and I do a lot of training courses, and they just completely collapsed. That business had nothing from February till November. Uh, the one in November was obviously completely online. But as a result, 
you'd have thought you'd have had lots of time, but actually you're chasing difficult to close business. And so I, I found I was just as busy in normal work that I couldn't spend any more time on Arock in the end. So it, it became very much, I'll do stoner and I'll keep an eye on the, the numbers, but that was it. Other than that, it's not that much different, I didn't think. Last question. Mm. We won the club of the year, um, which I think so we, we were all, all very pleased with. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we obviously can't rest on our laurels. What are maybe one or two things that you think we could do to do a, not necessarily a better job for members, but to do things for members that we've not done before? That's an interesting challenge, really, isn't it? Because we do lots of stuff already. <laughs> I know we're planning a lot more things to happen at National Alpha Day. And I think that's absolutely the way we should be going. Try to turn it more and more into a real flagship for the mark for Alfa Romeo, let alone the club. And of course, Alfa Romeo UK are engaged with us these days after many, many years of not really that much engagement with the marketing side of the company in the UK. There are actually a limited number of people. There's like four or five people that are Alfa Romeo only. So it's hardly surprising if you think about it. But they are thoroughly engaged with us now. Damien Daly is well on board, it seems, which is fantastic news. Lovely guy and an Alfista. So I'm hoping that we can keep building on our National Alpha Day and making it bigger and better in many, many ways, showcasing lots of different things, perhaps have some moving vehicle stuff to to keep other people interested, not just show and shine. I'd love it to be the case that I can enjoy the day myself, (laughs) find a way, rather than being involved in one of the main things that's happening. I've been judging concourse for a few years now, so that would be another thing, personal uh, objective. But That's one. I think the other thing I alluded to earlier on as well, which is engagement with members locally and trying to improve that, because fairly obviously, if you've got more and more members engaged with the club locally, they're going to stick with us and more things will happen locally. And one of the things I think is incredibly successful has been our Southern Alpha Day down here. Southwest Alpha Day was relaunched recently, and that's been incredibly successful. And so these sort of regional events that are perhaps not quite so complicated to organise, I think would be a great thing to promote you know, local engagement as well, get more people involved in them. But we have to have more moving vehicle events, I think, as yeah. a club, especially for Alfa Romeo. Alfa Romeo has always been a racing mark, and we have to plug into that again. Even with modern cars, you know, we've had British touring car champions. Um, the 155 is legendary. And across Europe with the European German touring car series, the, the they're legendary vehicles. The 156s are incredible cars, if you look at them, the, the, the super touring ones. But even you know, everyday cars dating from 105 series onwards have raced successfully. And we have to do something that supports that, surely, and, and even encourages our members out. And a lot of our members want to be involved in racing. So we have to get back involved in that more. We are now working with the Alfa Romeo Championship people again and obviously Richard Mercer has plugged into a number of series where alphas are racing and we're just getting a little bit more into that I think we just have to get further into it over time and find a find a slot for ourselves of course we've um, we've worked with Paul Plant at Bianco to put a virtual racer in a racing car on the grid hopefully in April if that goes ahead yes that's very interesting he's a brave man isn't he (laughs) (laughs) Paul or Colin (laughs) Paul, I think. (laughs) Interesting. I don't know what the situation was there, but presumably they've got to get some sort of racing license and and everything for the for the driver. So Paul's coordinating all of that. um, So so Colin basically goes from from having one 
to a license to a test day to a place on the grid mm, okay well good good luck to both really and I, I hope it's successful so i think racing is something and track days if we could find a way to make track days work we really struggle to get the numbers um because everybody's wants one and then it just seems too expensive or it's the wrong day of the week or yeah. something like that and we just don't seem to be able to do it but people love them and in general are pretty well behaved what i've yep. seen um our guys have been pretty good when we've had people at track days i mean i like them as well yeah me too yeah, in my everyday car. I've, I've taken the 159s around track. Sadly, we've come to the end of our time, but thanks very much for joining us and for sharing your car history and explaining your role on the board. Uh, not a problem, Guy. It's been great to uh, talk to you. And one day we'll see each other properly, methinks. Yeah, that, that would be great. That's it for this episode. As usual, we'll be back in two weeks' time at 1.30 on the 31st of January. You'll be able to download that or any of our other previous episodes from iTunes, Podcast Addict, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else good podcasts are found. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>